0: and we're live hey all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the blasters and blades podcast just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies a place where magic is king the sky is the limit and space is the place we are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction so without further ado we're going to let our guest mr edward willett Uh, introduce himself. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Edward?
1: Sure. Uh, My name is Edward Willett, as you just made clear, and I am the award-winning author. This is my potted little thing I always say. I'm the award-winning author of more than 60 books of science fiction, fantasy, and nonfiction for viewers of all ages, readers of all ages. Uh, My main publisher is Daw Books in New York. My latest novel is The Tangled Stars, which we'll be talking about is my 12th novel for Daw Books, but I've been published by many other uh, publishers, large and small. I have my own publishing company, Shadow Paw Press, and my own podcast called The World Shapers, where I interview, are you ready Ready for this? Science fiction and fantasy authors, uh, like, wow. like certain other people I know do. Uh, so yeah, that that's me in a nutshell. I live in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada, where it has been very cold recently. And uh, I have uh, a wife who's a professional engineer, which was a great career move for a freelance writer and one daughter and a much younger black siberian cat named Shadowpaw. <laughs> it's
0: a creative way to name your uh, your writing company. Uh Well, I wanted the, the
1: the company will exist long after the cat and his picture is the logo so I've I have immortalized him.
0: That's sweet. So the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we first found them, uh, this one was easy for Seska and I. his publicist reached out and said, hey, this book looks interesting. Let's see if we can get him on because he just gave us a slew of all of his authors that he thought might fit. And, uh, and so we reached out and uh, we're always looking to find guests we might not have heard of and uh, sort of expand our palette, so to speak, because you can only interview the same people about the same books so many times before it just bores us even. Uh, <laughs> but that's, that's how we met him. Doc, had you heard of him before this?
2: Um, no, I'm familiar with this publisher, though, and with uh, the Aurora Award, which he's won. So but I knew of it, but we were t- talking briefly beforehand about some of the more detailed of it. I knew it was a Canadian award. I knew it was for science fiction and that it was considered very good. So I was interested to learn more about it.
0: All right. Well, the next uh, the next part we have to do, Doc, is we have to decide if he gets to stay. So the religion questions. Are you ready to do your job, Doc? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, JR. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? If you had to pick one.
1: Star Trek. Why? Uh, because because it was the one I encountered first. And uh, I could never watch it when it was on because we didn't have a TV at the time. And so whenever I caught glimpses of it, I thought, this is the coolest thing ever. I was a kid at the time. And. Uh, then when I finally got to watch it, I mean, it was the only thing around, right? There was Star Star Wars came along when I was in college, and Star Trek was there before that. So, uh, yeah, Star Trek was just the, the my first encounter with that that level of uh, video science fiction excitement.
2: Now, did you read books in science fiction beforehand?
1: Oh yeah, I had two older brothers, and I was I read uh, you know the big three at the time: Heinlein, Clark, Asimov. Andre Norton was a big influence on me. Um, I wrote my first short story when I was 11 years old, and it was entitled Castra Glass Hypership Test Pilot, which gives you a pretty good idea of how early on I was steeped in science fiction. And actually, right here on my desk, uh, I have a copy of uh, Robert Silverberg's uh, Revolt on Alpha C, which he wrote when he was 19 years old. And it was my brother's book. It has his name in it. And I distinctly remember reading that. That may have been one of the seminal works that really influenced me as well uh bob silverberg was only 19 when he had that published and i was quite a bit younger when i read it but it did make a big influence on me
2: that's unusual even now to be published at 19 wow
1: yes yes and uh i attempted to be published at 19 but i was not
2: (laughs) well that makes you more uh you can be down in the trenches with us more normal folk (laughs)
0: I don't think they make titles like that anymore though. Like nowadays the titles are a lot more same samey and they kind of, you know, more approachable. You don't you don't get some of those more outlandish titles you see in some of the pulp era novels.
1: No, it was a, it was definitely a different era, but uh, you know, there's no there's no question Robert A Heinlein was my biggest single influence. All the juveniles, I devoured those and uh, I, that influence is definitely felt. I had a, a a young adult novel that came out in uh, 2021, I guess, uh, I published it, I should know, uh, called a Star Song and was a finalist for the Aurora Award this year, which we were just talking about. And it's totally a Heinlein Andre Norton. And it was one of the first novels I wrote and you can just see that influence through every step of it. That's
2: awesome. And congratulations on the nomination. Yes,
1: absolutely. Thank you, I've been nominated a few times. I've only won the once, but it's an honor just to be nominated. <laughs> it's a bigger honor okay. to win. But it's an honor just to be nominated.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, winning is always fun, but you got to get to the party first.
1: You get a cool trophy. And the the, the, the old Aurora trophy was really cool because it, it's made out of cut metal and it's really sharp and pointy. And uh, you can use it on elevators because I won it at Worldcon in when uh, it was in Montreal, which was great because my publishers from DAW were there. And it was like my second novel for them and I'd won this Aurora award. For that it was cool. But on the elevators, which are always crowded at Worldcon, you can turn it this way and poke at people <laughs> they give you room it's <laughs> really sharp on tops.
2: <laughs> Good luck getting that through airport security. I'm glad you were in Montreal.
1: Well, it was, so, it was specifically designed to take yeah. apart and lay flat. So it was a very cool design. It was done by. Oh, that is handy and ingenious. Now they have some plexiglass thing. That's not nearly as interesting, but that was so cool. for,
0: for our Americans who might not have heard of it, I will find their website and link to that in the show notes. So you can check it out as well.
1: Pre is the Aurora awards website.
0: Okay, do you have to be Canadian to vote, or is it just...
1: Yes, Canadian or Canadian uh, citizen or resident, I think.
2: Okay. By Canada, for Canada.
1: Yeah, that's very, that's very great. Canadian.
2: That's great. Um, so getting back on track with our <laughs> scheduled questions, um, how about the fantasy titles we have? We have Game of Thrones. Wheel of Time or The Lion, the
1: Witch, and the Wardrobe? On um, as books or?
2: Well, I'd say as books, but that's me.
1: That's a tough one. They're all, I've never read Wheel of Time. Um, it's very I, thick. I have read Game of Thrones as insofar as the story goes, and somebody hasn't finished it yet. And uh, I read all of the Narnia books. So there's no question the Narnia books were a bigger influence on me because I read them as a younger reader uh and probably as far as the world view goes i prefer narnia to the very very dark world of game of thrones it but i did enjoy the hopeful. game of thrones books so
2: it, narnia is a much more hopeful world
1: yes for sure
2: um so which was your first love science fiction or fantasy though
1: I definitely read science fiction before I read fantasy. I think uh, again, "Castor Glass, Hypership Test Pilot" when I was eleven, uh, my first short story. Uh, I remember trying. To, I remember that the first time I tried to read "The Hobbit," I found it boring and I didn't finish it. And the first time I tried to read "Lord of the Rings," it took me. I was in my teens before "Lord of the Rings" or "The Hobbit" really took hold. Uh, and that was kind of the only fantasy that, except for the except for the Narnia books. But I'm sure I read science fiction before I read those, so I think science fiction came first.
0: Okay, so what is it about the more umbrella genre of speculative fiction that you love?
1: Um, I like writing in this field, and I write both science fiction and fantasy and things that are a mixture. Um, It's simply, I like the fact that you can really expand your storytelling horizons. You can tell any kind of story, anything you can think of, uh, anything you can imagine, you can tell within the science fiction or fantasy uh, realms. Um, And you're not constrained in the same way that you are if you're writing a short story that's set here now. And I'd like to point out that even what appears to be a story set in the real world is not, it is set in a made up world that bears some resemblance to ours, but it's not our world. It's still a world that was made up in some author's head and is not a, you can't map it beat to beat to the real world because the real world is just has too much stuff in it. So you're always making things up. And uh, if you're writing in the speculative world, you get to make up more stuff. And I find that more interesting.
0: Okay. So you mentioned you started writing at 11, but how did your love of the genre of speculative fiction transition into you deciding to go professional when it became time to write, to to do it for a living?
1: Yeah, I, I wrote that short story and I took it to my junior high teacher. Uh, I'd skipped a grade and I had a summer birthday. So even though I was 11, I think it was my grade eight English teacher. And, um, he He did me the honor of taking it seriously. He said, "I don't understand why your aliens act like this, and this this didn't make sense to me." And after that, I just started writing i, I I'd been writing a lot of stuff and not finishing it, uh, and it was all very derivative on whatever I was reading at the time. I remember writing auto racing books because I was reading some auto racing books. I'm surprised I didn't write horse books because I read all the black stallion books, but I didn't have any horses, so I guess I didn't feel comfortable writing about horses in detail. Um, and I just wrote longer and longer stuff all through high school. I wrote, Uh, And I started writing novels in high school. So my first novel was called The Golden Sword. Uh, It was written when I was 14. Um, And uh, it was our our English teacher required us to have what was called a writing book. You had to write a page a day of something. And I know exactly when I started the book, September 5th, 1973, I just turned 14 in July. And uh, it's dated right up to the end of the semester. And then the date stopped, but I just kept writing as I finished the novel. I wrote a novel every year and I started sharing them when I was very anxious to learn to type. As soon as we had typing class, I learned to type and I was the fastest typist in the class because I was motivated. And I started typing these things up, sharing them with my friends. And I discovered that I could, I was telling stories that people actually enjoyed reading. And so it was somewhere along in there. I had many interests, music, science, uh, theater, um, and uh, writing were kind of my main ones. And I, chose somewhere along in there, probably about grade 11, that writing was what I wanted to focus on. However, I also knew that you couldn't make a living as a writer, at least not right off the top. So I went into journalism instead on the theory that as a uh, newspaper reporter, I would at least be writing and I, I could, uh, you know, be writing and getting paid for it on one side while I was working on my fiction. And that's that's how I planned out my career and that's how I I, uh, I plunged into it. And I continued to work as a newspaper reporter. And then I was in public relations at the Saskatchewan Science Center for a few years as communications officer. And then one day I quit my job and became a full-time freelance writer. And I've been doing that for 30 years now. And nice. i married an engineer, as I said, which is a good career move.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, somebody's gotta be organized, right? And so, <laughs> many authors, yeah, many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments you think that shape you as a storyteller?
1: Most might think it, well, everything goes into it. I, I can't think of anything specific. There's no doubt that my upbringing and uh, my family and the all of that kind of stuff plays into my worldview and plays into the kinds of stories that i tell but so does everything that i've read Uh, being a newspaper reporter um, i think was helpful in that uh, all you do is talk to people and i interviewed everybody from mountain climbers to television evangelists to politicians to uh, actors and singers and all that kind of thing Uh, and i think that in that sense, I think that being a reporter uh, and that sort of sense of what you don't know, you ask somebody and find out. I think that has probably played into my all my writing, which is constantly about learning things, whether it's uh, in my nonfiction. Uh, I mean, I wrote a whole book. I wrote Genetics Demystified for McGraw Hill without knowing that much about genetics. I taught myself enough genetics in order to write I've that book. I've
2: seen that book,
1: <laughs> and uh, I still can't believe I did that. I even did all the illustrations for it, which still blows my mind. How did I do that? I have to read it again to know what was in it. But I think that the in that sense, the the, the course that I took going through journalism and the other things that I did, uh, I'm a although I didn't go into theater. I have worked professionally as an actor and as a singer. I've done multiple musicals and operas and plays over the years. I think all that ties into my writing and like sense of dialogue and pacing and and uh, moving people around within a scene. So yeah, every single thing every everything that you do feeds into your writing. It can't not because The only thing you have to put on the page is the stuff that you get out of the, out of your head. And the only stuff you have in your head is the stuff that has come into it through your experiences. Boy, that sounded so profound.
0: I'm I'm impressed. It does. Absolutely. It's almost like you've done this before. All right, doc, your favorite questions.
2: I will get into my favorite questions because Jr. is too intimidated to ask more on that after that wonderful answer. So, um, Have you had any fan art or anybody dress up as one of your
1: fans? Um, I have once seen fan art and I, it was on some random, some random website. I think I was self Googling is how I found it. (laughs) And somebody had, and it wasn't even me because I've written under two pseudonyms. I have a a fantasy novel called Mage Bane written as Lee Arthur Chain, my two older brother's middle name and my middle name, which is Chain And then I have the Masks of Agreement trilogy, which was written as E.C. Blake. Uh, So I have these fantasy novels that were written under pseudonyms. And it was actually fan art from Magebane, as Lee Arthur Chain, is the thing that I saw. Uh, And I don't think it was actually a character. There's an airship in that book, which combines sort of steampunk and fantasy elements. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I think it was a drawing of the of the airship. That's as close as I've come. (laughs) And I've never seen anybody dress up as my characters. I did have a great experience. It wasn't my character, but I was on a a panel with Terry Pratchett at Worldcon in somewhere. I've been on panels with him twice, which is really cool. And anyway, I was moderating it, I think. And uh, as we're starting, this guy came in in this amazing troll costume, like one of the trolls from the city guard in the Terry Pratchett books came in silently, sat down on the front of the dais, armor, weapons, the whole bit, and just sat there and looked at the audience while we were trying to do our panels. So I would love to have that level of commitment from a fan, but I can't say I've experienced it yet.
2: That that I feel like that would be very difficult to keep on track. It did distract
1: pilot. us. It did distract us. There's no question.
2: So what it's was it like hard. the first time you, What?
0: I was just say I imagine it's even harder when you write sci-fi, because it's not like you can just, you know, paint your skin green and call yourself an orc or whatever. Like, when you talk about, like, spacesuits and stuff, that gets a lot more intricate, I think.
1: Yeah, you just don't actually, some of those aside from the stormtroopers, you don't, and, you know, I think that stuff's commercially made, largely. You don't you don't really see people coming in, like, 2001 spacesuits, for example, which would be a natural. Maybe they did back in the day. Um. But uh, yeah, you don't see a lot of spacesuits. It's always interested me. It is. It does tend to be the fantasy kind of stuff. Although I did see one, see two fans who did the landwalker from um, Star Wars. Uh, oh wow! Empire Strikes Back. You know the big in the snow scene. Yeah. There was like a it was like a horse, right? There was one in the front and one in the back, and they had a body in between them, and they had a little loose Skywalker hanging on a string down the side. That was at WorldCon in Winnipeg, my first WorldCon in 1994. I still remember that. <laughs>
2: Well, some of the early costumes of si- cosplaying was actually in costuming of science fiction and fantasy was done at Worldcon. So.
1: Yeah, no, no, in fact, my I, I happen to know that my publishers from DAW, Betsy Wolheim and Sheila Gilbert, when they were young, they did some of that. I've seen pictures. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, my. I bet they were amazing at it. Um, but what was it like the first time somebody asked you for an autograph?
1: It was cool. Um you know, I don't know if the first time I was asked was probably on the theater side rather than on the writing side. Really? Uh, yeah, because you do you do a show and you'll, if you know, if some people hang around and they want to get your signature on the program, that might have actually happened to me before I got anybody who because my first books were uh, you, my very first published book was using Microsoft Publisher for Windows ninety five. Nobody was asking for a signature, and my second published book was using Microsoft Publisher for Windows ninety seven, which also didn't get any signatures. And Steven Spielberg still hasn't called about making the movie of that one. So my first books tended to be in sort of that genre, and and but I was doing theater during that time, so I suspect my first autograph was for was as an actor rather than as. <laughs> That still counts. It does, and it's still cool. It's like, really? You really want this? Oh, okay. <laughs> I usually say, uh, hang on to that; it'll be worth absolutely nothing someday. And that's the other thing, you know. Authors, authors sign things left, right. Speaking of Terry Pratchett, there was a joke going around that it was harder to find a book of his he hadn't signed than one that he had signed, because he was so willing to sign books. And yet, you go to comic cons, right, and you have these actors who were you know, third goblin from the left in some movie and they're charging 50 or 60 bucks to sign your, and get your picture taken with them. And I just don't think that's fair.
0: <laughs> I think authors in general, I think you tend to get, they seem to care more about their fans than some of the Hollywood actor types do. Well, and that I could think just be my bias.
2: Some of it but, is, uh, they don't, like they make money when they, it's been explained to me. So I could be entirely wrong. But it's been explained to me that some of that comes from that those actors often aren't. That's the only way they're making money off of the things that they've continued to do. And if they're no, particularly if they're no longer acting.
1: So fair enough. But but, I would still um, like to get paid for (laughs) my.
2: But yeah, I I don't know. It's always a a different scenario. Um, And I don't know. I, I, I have tons of books. signed. I can't say anything. I have lots of books signed, and I save every single one of them, even if I have more than one of the same book.
1: Well, there's a very good reason also, if you're an author, to sign your books before you leave the uh, whatever books they have in stock at the bookstore, which is that it makes it harder for them to return them. (laughs) There
2: is that. So, um, let's see. Have you spotted someone reading your book out in public, just in the wilds?
1: I have. Um and what
2: was that like?
1: It, it was it was cool. It's like, hey, I know that book. I didn't go over and say, hi, I'm the author. I just said, Oh, look at they're reading my book. That's really that's really kind of cool. And it's mm-hmm. also secondhand is, is kind of fun. Um I had uh, I have a friend who's a school teacher and I had a book called uh, wow. Andy Nebula Interstellar Rockstar, which is a young adult science fiction novel, one of my earliest ones. And she had gotten after this kid for reading in class. He said, but it's such a good book. And it turned out that it was Andy Nebula, Interstellar rock star, that he was reading. And she told me that later. So that was kind of a secondhand, seeing somebody reading your book in public. And uh, that was even, in a way, that was even cooler. <laughs> because one reason I started writing as a young person and going forward has been that I want to create stories that readers will enjoy as much as I enjoyed when I was a young reader. So, and one reason I write young adult quite a bit is I just want to connect with those younger readers and so to find out that i did that was very gratifying
2: jr are you it JR? helps
0: if you unmute just putting that out there <laughs> uh the things things you learn
1: it'll sink in eventually
0: <laughs> uh, i'll figure it out you know on my last podcast i'll remember um, so you know maybe in a hundred years. All right, so this is the part uh, Edward where we talk about everything you have written. So can we get the reader's digest version of your body of work?
1: Everything um, well, let's just do the fiction let's not do all the nonfiction. Uh, Okay, on the fiction side, we started with a book called Soul Worm, which was a fantasy, young adult fantasy novel that was followed by The Dark Unicorn. Both of those were shortlisted for Saskatchewan Book Awards, followed by Andy Nebula, Interstellar Rockstar, which was an Our Choice selection from the Canadian Children's Book Centre, followed by Spirit Singer. I was way ahead of my time, and that was an e-book original at a time when e-books were on floppy disks, so (laughs) the market was small, (laughs) you know, like... And then I said, well, this ebook thing doesn't work. I was just a little ahead on things there. Uh, and then it was also. But it won a Saskatchewan Book Award, which came with money, unlike the Hugo Award or the Aurora Award. It was like a $2,000 prize. So I took Ooh, that.
0: And that nice. nice. Uh,
1: and then I finally, I had a book called Lost in Translation, which was published by Five Star and was picked up by Daw in paperback. And that was my Daw break in. And since then, just going with the Daw books. We had uh, Lost in Translation, Marsha Shiguro, which won the Aurora Award. Terrence Segura, which was the sequel, uh, followed by um, Mage Bane, which written as Lee Arthur Chain, followed by. Oh, I lost, did I miss one? Lost in translation, Marcia Giro, Terence. No, that's it, Age Bane. <laughs> then the trilogy as E.C. Blake, the Masks of Agreement trilogy, Mask Shadows and Faces, standalone science fiction called The City Born, a three-part series called World Shapers that began with World Shaper carried on with the moonlit, uh, Master of the World and then the Moonlit World. And then my latest one is called uh, The Tangled Stars. So that's 12 novels for DAW. I have a five-book young adult series uh, that was published by Kato Books, which unfortunately no longer exists. I've killed a number of publishers, metaphorically, apparently, because they publish me and, and go away. Um, that's the Shards of Excalibur series. I had a book called Flames of Nevjana, which was a young adult fantasy, which has since come out as Blue Fire. Star Song, which I just published through Shadow Pop Press. Uh, have I missed a novel here or there? I, I, think, that's, I think that's all of them. About 20 no,
2: novels. That's a
0: very total. impressive list. It's 20. normally with <laughs> and, and with modern or you know, the indie post-indie kind of stuff. It's like, oh, I this series, that series, and that series. And 50 books is actually a three li- three item list because they're all in series these days. Uh look what David Weber did to us. Although I imagine there were others doing that before him. Um but hey doc, don't don't blame me. I just read Middle SF, right? What can I say? So, I
2: know you need some variety in your
1: diet. On the just to touch on the nonfiction. The nonfiction has largely been it sounds like a lot, but it's largely been on educational publishing. So it's it tends to be very skinny books, like on I've written a book on <laughs> on skateboarding, I've never been on a skateboard in my life. I did one on rock climbing. I live in Saskatchewan. We don't do a lot of rock climbing here in the prairies, but I did a book on that. I did a book on how to become a bricklayer. I did, <laughs> I did a bio, biography of the Ayatollah Khomeini. I did biographies of Janis Joplin, uh, Jimmy Hendrix, and uh, Johnny Cash. Well, uh, I did a book I've about the mutiny on the, the uh, Genetics
2: demystified <laughs> books. So uh, and
1: genetics demystified. Yes.
2: <laughs> yes, uh, that one, one actually. Per- I went, wait, I know that book.
1: <laughs> uh, science. science I barely made it I through Betty Crocker
0: I've done quite a There's few things in my history so uh, alright all right. those all sounded fascinating but today we're here to talk about your book The Tangled Stars so where did you get the premise for this story
1: uh, that's a good question and I wish I could answer it uh, all I know is that I wanted to do something set in outer space I wanted to do something with a cat in it and uh, I wanted it to be funny. So those are the three elements that got mixed together and became The Tangled Stars. I think there's no question that part of the outer space thing was watching The Expanse and thinking, you know, I miss this kind of outer space adventure, uh, which is what I always thought I would be writing. So I thought, well, why don't I write some then? And uh, so that that was probably part of it. Uh, and the cat, well, I love cats, and I'd always wanted to do a, a cat, but I wanted a cat that could be an actual character. So I had to figure out, how to make the cat a character and so he's an AI uplifted cat. Uh, he has a, an artificial intelligence overlaid over the feline brain so he's a cat but he's a very smart cat uh, and uh, he can talk and then I wanted it to be humorous because uh, I, I have a sense of humor that I like to to spread and the, the World Shapers books that I mentioned um, were all largely first person and whenever I write in first person It's funny how the character tends to share my sense of humor. (laughs) That's the funniest thing. Uh, Even though that was a female character and this is a male character. But uh, so, yeah, it's my chance to do just to let go and and be humorous. And that was the premise. Then I mixed that all together and decided how I could tell the kind of story I wanted to tell. And the result was this outer space, far future space opera heist uh, adventure. Um, mostly takes place in our solar system, but we do end up in other solar system in other solar systems at the end of the book.
2: So, you said it as written in first person.
1: It's not entirely in first person. This is something okay. I I did through World Shapers too. I don't know how common it is. Uh, large chunks of it are in first person. Some sections are in third person with different characters. The so advantage.
2: I think it's more common in fantasy. So, I find it interesting that you did it in a science fiction book.
1: Yeah, it just makes sense because I needed to tell certain scenes that my first person narrator could not be there for, just could not be there for. But I didn't want to have that particular character first person, partly because I might want to kill them off, partly because it's a villain. I don't know. It just felt right.
0: (laughs) No,
2: I I didn't have
1: any big plan. It just this is the way this book works.
2: No, I just think it's great.
0: I've seen that before, Doc. A lot of times it happens when the first book was first person and one
1: one POV. Oh, no, and then I mean, I've seen it. Grows, it's
2: just not as common in science fiction as it is in fantasy.
1: I think the one that really got me that I wanted to avoid was the, oh, what are they called? It was a very one, after the Hunger Games, you had this other one.
2: Oh, I know which one you're talking about.
1: The Divergent. Um, Devo- the divergent, yeah. And you had two in first person, and then all of a sudden in the third one, it's shifted to third person, and I immediately knew that somebody was going to die because we were no longer in her POV. Yeah,
2: I think um, the last one that I read that was science fiction that did that was um, the Aurora Rising trilogy. So, okay. which I think is also from Daw.
1: Could be.
0: Could be. They didn't. publish a lot, so it's hard to keep up. All they right. Do so good we. Stuff. Before we dive into his book, we're going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man. Thank you, Terry.
1: The Terran Empire is dead. Long live the Empire. Commander Jared Mertz, the bastard son of the Emperor, and his half-sister, Princess Kelsey, barely speak to one another. To their dismay, their father seizes an opportunity to change that and sends them on a dangerous quest to explore the fallen empire. Separated from home by an impassable gulf and struggling to redefine their relationship, they find themselves thrust into a vicious war. Unless they work together to stop the Empire's deadly legacy, billions face a horrific fate. Empire of Bones, written by Terry Mixon. Now available at Amazon.com. (laughs)
0: Yeah. <laughs> all right doc we are back so while you uh, get prepared to ask him about this cover we are going to throw that up on the screen there we go all right i'm all set for you doc
2: i like it and you know it's funny because that really that cover really reminds me of some of the early pulp with the colors but um i like it it also reminds me of some of what i've been seeing in more fantasy covers lately. Not as many science fiction, though, despite the very bold co- colors. I'm not as good at the art stuff as Nick.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't <laughs> play with the artists. Our co-host that normally talks about the covers, Edward, is a comic book artist. So he gets all like waxes poetic, like his art school stuff. And we just pretend like we know and what I'm he's like, talking about.
2: I, I actually, I love the, I love the cover. Um, mm-hmm. It's just.
1: Well, there's another thing going on with this cover. And that is that. Yeah. Well, that uh, unusually, uh, this book is an ebook and audio book with no print version at the moment. So, I think part of the cover design principle is that it has to be work really well in the smaller kind of ebook display size, maybe. Yeah. And so they weren't. They went for something that was very bold and very, um, you know, e- easy to grasp at once with few elements and not a lot of detailed like painterly stuff or anything like that
2: very clear it definitely stands out which is nice when you're seeing that and i have noticed that um for lack of a better the ones the books that only come out in ebook often have very very clean covers like not a lot of colors and blending these are very bold even jr with his color blindness
1: can read
0: this. I do. And I actually I agree with you on the the look to the pulp. I actually had to check the date of this to see when it came out because I was like, wait a minute, what? Um, <laughs> but is there plans? Um, since you mentioned it's only out in ebook and audio at the moment, is there plans to make it paperback or hardback?
1: Not that I'm aware of. Uh, and I think what is happening and this is new for me, this is the first one I've had from Daw that came out. And but it's also interesting that it came out simultaneously in audiobook. So it's audiobook and ebook. Um I have the feeling, and this is just a feeling, nobody's told me this, that the ebook originals are kind of taking the place that, like, my first book, my first three books, were four books, were uh, mass market paperback originals. And I, that market has largely collapsed because you don't have paperback stands in every gr- grocery store and drugstore like you did once upon a time. And so I suspect that the ebook original stuff that's coming out from major publishers, because I'm not the only one that Dawes is, is bringing out as an ebook only uh, and audiobook. book. Um, I suspect it's kind of in that what used to be the mass market original space. Uh, that's just my feeling. I don't know that for sure. I do know that, of course, uh, with uh, all the changes in publishing and rising costs and everything else, that there's there's all sorts of changes that have happened in publishing just since I've been being published. And I'm sure there'll be more going forward.
2: Well, we saw, I saw where um, in 2020 and in 2021, when there were issues with paper and getting things done with that, like Bain and some of the other publishers were going ahead and releasing the ebooks because they could they didn't have a problem. You don't need to print an ebook, you know? Yeah,
1: that's certainly part of it. And so. again, I don't know. And of course, the other thing with DAW is that they are now, uh, they have sold to Astra Publishing. So they have a, a new, new team there uh, that's working on on stuff as well so although this cover predates that um so yeah it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, going forward
0: so without getting into the nitty-gritty um is there an option where at some point in time if people wanted paperback they could do a some version of a print on demand i don't well, know how Tratton handles that
1: it, daw has i mean the contract gives them that right yes so it's entirely up to them i don't i unfortunately don't get to say <laughs> otherwise i would say let's put it out in a very expensive hardcover that will be put in every bookstore in multiple copies but well
2: i mean i've seen where um like wraithmark creative they will do uh they only do ebooks and audiobooks and every so often they'll do a kickstarter and then they come out with a really high grade leather gold tooled art book uh like well it's a book but it has art and everything in it as so i mean who knows maybe yeah. that's the way of the future
0: what i what i will say is is doc and i have talked on air and off air you know bezos be praised and all that because I, you know, I i write exclusively for him at the moment but um I, I do worry about you know book markets having all their eggs in one basket so anytime i see the other venues to get books out into the wild uh, adapting so they can survive in the modern world. I think that's a good thing we all win because you get better books that way when there's competition. So the fact that uh, Bezos isn't the decider of all things, I think is good for all of us. Um, so yeah. Uh, and Doc just loves it because she's like a super fan of uh, Barnes and Nobles. I, it's almost like I she am. has stock there or something.
2: <laughs> they, they are not a publicly traded company anymore.
0: Okay, it was just a joke, Doc. Don't get all sciencey with it, and ask him the next book, next next book, next question.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so can you give us the thirty second elevator pitch for Tangled Stars? Sure.
1: Uh, well over we a century, well over a century ago, the uh, the interstellar network call them wormholes. They're not wormholes, but. We'll call them that for the purposes of this. And there went five of my seconds right there. Anyway, a century ago, the interstellar network that uh, enabled uh, interstellar transportation collapsed rather catastrophically and kind of plunged uh, the Earth back into its own little system with no way out. And things have been kind of bad and they're starting to sort of come back. And my main character is a scavenger who has somebody on his tail, a crime boss and he desperately needs to pick up this big piece of space junk. But when he's going to pick it up, he discovers there's a hole in space and it looks like the network has reopened. The only way he can take advantage of that and escape the guy that's after him is to go to earth and steal the only remaining working starship from a museum, the Museum of Science and Technology in Chicago to be specific. And along the way, he picks up an old girlfriend who's now also a cop on the moon and also a revolutionary and uh, together they uh, they they try to steal this starship and get out of the system and see what the heck uh, has happened to this interstellar network of planets with the crime boss chasing them all along the way
0: oh
2: my goodness
1: oh and there's a talking cat who becomes a starship captain i almost forgot him <laughs> <laughs>
2: you can't forget the cat
1: he's the first mate of the of the main character uh, cooper douglas who's the con man thief scavenger and uh, uh, his backstory uh, is interesting as well. And yeah, so he's he's part of this all the way uh, along.
2: That sounds like a really fine book. Is this gonna be a series?
1: Uh, I am working on the proposal for the sequel now, whether it will be a series or not, depends of course on whether Dahl wants the sequel. Although if they didn't take it, I will probably write it myself at some point. So I, I certainly ex- expect to write uh, more books in this universe. One for sure, and hopefully more after that.
0: So we normally ask this towards the end, but I'm going to ask it a little bit out of order. It sounds like this could almost be a YA style, just based on your description of the book. So who is this book geared towards as far as audience age ranges?
1: No, this one is definitely adult. Uh, It's not... The characters are all, you know, around 30-ish, the two main characters. The cat's not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but everybody else is. Uh, there's no young characters in it, and it's, uh, you know, and there's there's some violence, and even though it's humorous, that it, that's very high stakes going on, and uh, things like that. So I would call it a just an adult. I mean, I, I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it a, a particularly graphic, the violent, or there's no graphic sex or anything like Maybe. that. So it's YA friendly for older readers, but it's yeah. not aimed at the YA market. All my books, I would say, are probably friendly to to YA readers because I was reading adult books when I was a teenager.
2: I was, too. YA, was, YA was a, is a new thing as much as it is a standard thing in a huge market. It's newer, and I, I love it. This sounds like the type of book I would have picked up and devoured as a kid, and now still. So,
0: so which tropes do you feel like you hit the best in the Tangled Stars novel? which tropes is her.
1: I don't know. Define them. I don't know what the tropes are. I just write.
2: (laughs) Well, it sounds like, you know, you have like the heist. I love it. I think. Yeah, it's a
1: heist. It's a heist novel in a way. I
2: think sci-fi is missing heist novels. There aren't
1: many. It's got the con man sort of, I suppose a little bit the, slippery Jim Grizz from the stainless steel rat books might be an influence on my my con man guy here a little bit I guess uh it's got this the strong female character she's a lot stronger than than the main male character because she's a cop um and it's got the talking cat I don't know where that falls in but <laughs> if it's not
0: a, a trope it ought to be and we should add it to the list wherever that list happens to be kept uh, cause
1: that, I that got my there. interest.
2: You're the one who likes to talk in tropes.
1: There is a, what's, there's a website. What's it called? TV tropes or something like that. TV. Yeah. Uh, and one of my, a couple of my books have been extensive. The masks books in particular, I think, uh, at least one of them has been extensively Annotated in there, and it's really fun for me to read. Actually, <laughs> that
0: sounds neat. So, when you read your books that are listed there, and then we'll get back on the Tangle Stars, and you look at some of their breakdown, do you like? No, that's not exactly what I wrote or what I meant at all. Or do you? Ha- did they nail it spot on?
1: They can. They certainly pull stuff out. I. I don't think of. There's. A, there's a story I like to tell about that. It's in one of Isaac Asimov's autobiographical books, Opus 100 or Opus 200. I think he got to Opus 300 actually, but. Uh, Uh, he talked about going into a classroom at university in New York and somebody was teaching his novel, his, a short story, Nightfall, and he listened. And then he went up to the professor afterwards and he said, well, that was very interesting, but I'm Isaac Asimov and I wrote that story. And I didn't put that stuff in there. And the professor said, well, I'm very happy to meet you. uh, But uh, just because you wrote the story, what makes you think, you know, what's in it? (laughs) And that's stuck in my head ever since because, you don't necessarily know, you know what you put in it, but you don't know what other people are getting out of it
2: because the stuff like you that put
1: into there. It gets mixed up with everything that's in their head. And what comes out is something perhaps a little different than you intended.
0: I've heard that story, uh, variations of that with other authors that were mentioned as well um, about the, sometimes the blue curtains are just blue curtains was the one I heard when I was in. Yeah. English that's major. another well-known one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm um, a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Sharon and I
2: have a very similar ongoing argument about uh, what makes science fiction science fiction versus fantasy.
0: Yeah, that's, this is one of the one of the things we come back to. So, speaking of uh, genres and subgenres, which uh, do you think your story fits best? We had this discussion in the pre-show that Amazon seems to think this is a time travel book, but yeah, they got that I don't one know where wrong.
1: That comes from. I don't know how they got time travel. I think it's because my wormholes, which I deliberately called when I was trying to describe it, are actually called multiverse adjacent space time tunnels. Um, and they're described as you slip between the universes in the multiverse and you can go through the space, this non existent space between them and kind of squirt through like a watermelon seed into another place in the universe. Uh, why not? It's all hand waving anyway. Um, but anyway, that may be that the fact that it says "space time tunnel," they somehow decided, oh, it's got time in it; it must be a time travel novel. But there's no time travel involved whatsoever. So, so, what so call it, you... I would call it a space opera myself. Heist novel, space opera, humorous heist novel, <laughs> space opera. So, so what I'm
2: being... I think heists are one of those things we don't we don't see as much of in science fiction. And I yeah,
0: you do see a lot more. There's a rise on the indie side, at least, of heist novels, but they're told from the Galactic Cop perspective and not from the heist
1: doer, and I that, guess. That's so. a
2: crime-fighting novel versus a heist novel. A heist Great. novel is like this or Ocean's Eleven.
1: Where you assemble a team in order yeah. to steal something. Yeah. Okay. So what I
0: am hearing from you, though, when you talk about it not being time travel, is that the AI algorithm over at Amazon is not as uh, adept as the one in the kitty cat. Is that what I'm hearing from you?
1: (laughs) It certainly isn't. I have Uh, an anthology that I kickstarted, and they they call it steampunk. I think there might have been one steampunk story in the first one, but it's entirely as far as I can tell, it's based on the cover art that I chose, which if you squint at it might be steampunkish. And the, they just decided that the whole book must be steampunk. And it really, it's, it's got everything in it. It, it. It's science fiction and fantasy of all sorts. So yeah, I don't know. I've, and I've had other books that I look at the categories that they've popped into. And I think that has, no. <laughs> and I know so, if, if you're dealing with Amazon directly as a publisher, you can actually try to change some of that. But when you're an author and your publisher is somebody else, you're just kind of along for the ride.
0: Ooh, that's something I hadn't even considered. So I know that uh, I have a soft spot in my heart for short stories because that's what I grew up reading as a sort of a Reader's Digest version of things to pass the time while Me I too. was stuck tagging along with my sisters on their Girl Scout stuff. Uh, <laughs> so we do interviews specifically on short content. So the next time you do a short story collection, you'll have to hit us up and we'd love to talk about it because
1: I, I nerd out over that stuff. Well, there, out- there'll be one kickstarted. I'll be kickstarting volume four in uh, March.
0: So you'll have to reach out. I'd like to, we'd like to talk about that while the Kickstarter is still live. Um, so now let's talk about the story itself. What can you tell us about
1: your main characters? Well, Cooper yeah. Douglas is a, um, he's a con man thief. Well, he calls it pre salvage. Everything ends up as salvage. He just salvages it before it actually gets to that point. So it's not really. Stealing. <laughs> I like it. Uh, he, uh, he grew up in an orphanage on, on the moon. Uh, and was raised uh, by the government uh they were trying to you know teach him what not to do and instead he and he learned <laughs> what not to do <laughs> so that's his his back and uh lisa gray is a cop but she met um she met my main character 10 years ago when they rescued the cat the cat was uh a walking bomb who had been brainwashed to support this revolutionary group. And he was supposed to walk into the um, Lunar Parliament and blow it up. And they managed to convince him not to because he was also a smart cat <laughs> at AI. And they, they convinced him that this was not the thing to do. And that's all told in a short story actually in the uh, Shapers of Worlds volume two, the second anthology I kickstarted 10 years before this one um, for the story takes place. So those are the main characters, the cat, the, the cop, revolutionary cop slash secret revolutionary um, because earth kind of dominates everything and the moon isn't too happy about that. And then my uh, scavenger and then the bad guy, Eric Galeotto is a outer system crime boss. And he finds out that the tunnels have opened up again and uh, he doesn't really, I mean, he really would like to squash uh, Cooper Douglas, but he also thinks if I can get out there and get this ship, and get out there, then I will be on the ground floor, and I'll make a fortune. You know, you know how crooks think. So that's the main characters.
0: <laughs> I will say the story of the um, of the of the cat has some very Guy Fox vibes to it. Uh, yeah, I so suppose it's
1: yeah, the Gunpowder I, Plot. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I, I like that. Um, so, are you a history nerd? Is that why you went with that, or is it just sort of? I actually
1: moment? hadn't even thought about the connection until now that he was trying to blow up the Parliament. It was just. Uh, I wanted him to be, you know, I just use parliament because I'm Canadian and, uh, and it's, you know, it's a little different term. Uh, you know, no, I, I hadn't made the Guy Fox connection at all. I do like history, but that wasn't, that wasn't why I did that. <laughs>
0: okay. So,
2: um, is there anything you can tell us kind of about this main, uh, villain? Like, do they, they meet, do they know you? He- like, he's obviously aware of. Yeah, he's. Characters,
1: but. Uh, Uh, Coop, um, you know, he's basically alone. In in this instance, they made a connection because Coop borrowed money in order to fix his beaten up old scavenging scavenging ship. And uh, he wasn't able to pay it back. The only way he's going to be able to pay it back is if he scores this big chunk of space junk left over from what used to be the space station when the mast still existed. When they collapsed, it blew up and there's pieces floating around all over the place and he's tracked one down and is trying to That's the setup to the whole thing. Uh, And uh, if he can't pay him back, then he will be probably spaced and they will seize his spaceship and kill the cat, you know, so he really doesn't want to be caught by this guy. Uh, But he's really the outer system crime boss. He has my favorite. My favorite in-joke is he has a gambling casino that orbits Vesta. And this is a really old science fiction reference. We'll see if you get it. Uh, it's painted purple, and so it's called the Maroon off Vesta. Anybody? Anybody? is very familiar, but very,
0: familiar. very
1: early Isaac Asimov short story <laughs> about okay. sometime no, in the forties, maybe his first one.
2: I am not as familiar with Isaac Asimov's shorts as I am with High Lines. Now I, I'm going to go look that up, though, because
1: well, uh, and now that's I feel It's a level of cool, like my it. humor. There's a lot of Star. There's a lot of Star Trek jokes. Uh, there's a lot of star wars jokes there's because um the cat has access to old um entertainment and all that stuff because he's plugged into the the internet basically the this the, the interest planetary network and so he makes all these jokes referencing old entertainment things like alice in wonderland and star trek and star wars and nobody knows what he's talking about but i, I do
2: find those more even funnier when people are like huh
1: i i i've done it and i probably do it too much there was a reviewer that said there were too many Star trek jokes and i thought can there be such a thing i, I don't i, I
2: think don't... that reviewer is not a trekkie obviously they like firefly or something
1: back in world shaper i think it was one of my favorite lines was that by the character there was that one of the one of the most annoying things about traveling to multiple worlds was that nobody got your star trek jokes
0: <laughs> i, I like love it. it.
2: I know this feeling. Jared does not always get my Star Trek jokes.
1: <laughs> I so, mean, anyway, you know. That's the bad guy, Eric Galeotto. He's a very bad guy, uh, and uh, he's also a main character, and he will be a, a main character in a different way in the sequel. So that's a bit of a spoiler. He does survive.
2: Ooh, I, I look forward to it. But speaking of survival, how would yours be if your characters found you in a back alley and they knew who you were?
0: After all the hell you put them through.
1: Uh, they would probably like be. All hell.
2: There was good humor and great laughs.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't think. Well, first of all, Cooper Douglas doesn't believe in violence. So that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, what cop, about that cat? Lisa Gray uh, has no problem with violence. So that might be a bit more worrisome. But she probably wouldn't kill me. She might just beat me up. And uh, the cat. It, he's a cat. I like cats. I'm sure we'd get along just fine. <laughs> okay. Every chapter starts with his uh, private log. So there's these little cat- catechisms <laughs> at the top, start, catechisms, which you call them catechisms, at the uh, start of each uh, chapter. And uh, I recently put them all, uh, most of them online uh, as a promotional thing on my uh, Twitter feed. I was doing one a day. And, and uh, there is one there where he says that uh, he only. He, he will only uh, hang out with certain carefully chosen humans unless there was a possibility of a rump rub, in which case all bets were off. So,
0: <laughs> so I, I will say sure you
2: got many comments on that one.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, so we can call it catechisms. I'll say a few a dozen Hail Marys for you and we'll be good to go. Maybe
1: cataclysms. I don't know. <laughs>
0: yeah, whatever works. So it it sounds like the way you were describing it, that the spaceship was a character too. Did you write it as such, sort of like the Millennium Falcon is a character or this, the Enterprise? Well, they're
1: very much characters because one of, the, one of the things is that this is a very AI heavy uh, society and that uh, the AIs run everything because people just aren't capable of the complexity anymore. So Cooper Douglas has this spaceship. He doesn't pilot it. He just tells the AI what to do. And the AI obeys him. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, the cat Tibbled uh, is a uh, a bit of a worry to the people who think about it a bit more deeper deeply than Cooper does is that this is a an AI that does not have the you, sort of like the the three laws of robotics. It doesn't have that one that says you must obey a human being. <laughs> so he's a rogue AI. He's not supposed to exist. He's he's highly illegal. Uh, but he was created by people who wanted to use him as a bomb, so not too surprising. So this whole AI thing comes through, and that means that the, the Jean, the Gimberet, which is the ship that they're trying to steal, is actually a character as an AI inside it, and they must convince the AI to come with them is the only way to actually steal the ship. You can't go in and just start it up and fly away. You have to convince the AI that that's what it wants to do. And so, all of the ships in that sense are characters. A bit like the ship who sang, again, another classic science fiction reference in yes. the chemistry. Sorry. <laughs> Doc's, Doc's got a, a bit the of an addiction.
2: Series. Uh, that universe is great. This is the Brain in the Bronze series. Jair really doesn't so, qualify as the bronze, but he's definitely not the brains.
0: So would you consider the AIs, like are your AIs like sentient and they're their flushed out personalities the way some AIs are or are they more just algorithmic sort of amalgamations? Like like would they pass the, the Turing test, I believe it's called?
1: Yes, some of them would. Um, there are different levels of them, but the ones that run, <laughs> the ones that run the space stations and the starships and things like that, they do have this built in. They have to have a, uh, a human that tells them what to do. That's hardwired in. Um, but they are sentient, and they develop personalities. And they can be, uh, in a way, Lisa, the reason that she's needed for the heist is because she's very good with AI. She's like an AI whisperer, like a horse whisperer, only for AIs. Um, so yes, they are definitely characters.
0: OK. so. It's, so speaking of characters, when you write, do you have favorite character archetypes?
1: I think looking back over my my oeuvre, uh, I would say um, the thing that keeps coming up over and over again are, are characters who are always trying to do the right thing and usually failing a lot along the way, but they keep trying. I think that's the, I don't know what that archetype is, but it's this kind of, um never giving up and always striving to to do better even though they're sometimes clueless and make stupid choices and end up making things worse because otherwise there wouldn't be a story but i think that's the central archetype and that in a way that some of that does go back to writing ai i think and that kind of character arc of maturing and and finding your way through a an alien world. I mean, that's really teenagers (laughs) in a way, and you just put it forward and then it becomes outer space adventure. But I think that's the thing that's always been in my fiction. And it probably goes back to because I started writing as such a young, as a young writer. I sometimes say that I grew up, but my characters never did. And maybe they have to a certain extent in the things that they're concerned about and, and, uh, and all of that. But that, that basic character arc I think shows up over and over again in my, in my work.
0: Okay, so let's take a sneak peek of how the sausage was made. So were there any cool scenes that you had to cut when you uh, wrote the first draft to to the published version that would be entertaining?
1: My um, writing process doesn't produce stuff that I have to cut as a rule. (laughs) I start at the beginning and I write to the end and then I polish it up. and, And generally speaking, nothing much changes. There was, however, a scene that I expanded, which is not quite the same thing, but close, um, and the story, there's a kind of a bit of a flashback that talks about how they rescued Tybalt when he was going to be made into a bomb, but it's not fleshed out. And for Shapers of Worlds volume two, the second anthology I kickstarted started fe- featuring guests in my podcast, The World Shapers. Um, I always put one of my own stories in there because I'm the editor and the publisher. So of course I'm gonna put one mm-hmm. of my own stories in there. Mm-hmm. And I wrote that out as a short story, Tybalt's Tale, which takes place 10 years before this book and introduces the characters in a way that they're only, some of the scenes are kind of carried over to the introduction of the characters in the, in the book, but a lot more fleshed out. And we meet the cat and we find out how they convince the cat not to blow itself up and instead to come with them and all that sort of thing. So that's that wasn't really cut from the novel, it's expanded from the novel. It's so, um, that's as close as I've come. I, I, I've been thinking since you asked that question before we started, and I can't think of a single book where i have cut out a scene that i can remember and, and left it on the side i simply write until i'm done and then i polish it up i do plan things ahead of time though i'm not a pancer so that probably contributes to that
0: yeah i've noticed the the people that have the cool scenes that they cut generally
1: speaking are not working from an outline yeah it's it's more of a synopsis and i don't review rev, i don't refer to it uh, religiously Uh, But it's always, that's where I work things out before I start writing, so.
0: Okay.
1: Interesting. All right, Doc.
2: I know. Uh, So, of all the tech that's in your universe, is there any you'd want to have now? And you'd be like, you know what? I could use that if I could have it. The tech? Mm.
1: I want a spaceship. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all, sir? Don't we all?
2: That is fair. um,
1: I would really love to have Tibble, the AI uplifted cat. That's a form of technology. So I think I think he would be my number one choice of technology.
2: And how would you use Tibble?
1: Oh, he would just be fun to hang around with and watch television with and, and make comments on what we were watching with.
2: So you'd have theater too. mystery science theater.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> be in the cat. It'd be so a great podcast. You-
0: absolutely i'd listen so you know you you mentioned a spaceship too so if you had your own personal spaceship not one you're naming because it fits the themes and stuff in a book what would you name your own personal spaceship Hmm.
1: that's an interesting question you know (laughs) uh, probably what would make the most sense in a way would be to name it what I named my bicycle, my red bicycle I had when I was about eight years old, which was the Fireball X15, which goes back to the super marionette um, Jerry Anderson stuff, which I remember I saw when I was about six or seven, and it really impressed me at the time. And so there you go. I would go way back, old school.
0: <laughs> I, I can dig it. it, though. I like it. You got to add that to one of your, well, I don't know if it's IP. Okay, you might not no, get it. really hit that. Hit that.
2: You'd have to put racing stripes on it.
0: Oh, absolutely. That's true. And tassels. Somehow you have to put tassels on the <laughs> handlebar. I don't know how you do that on a spaceship, but it would absolutely be essential.
1: Yeah, because you can't do the little thing that in the in the spokes that makes it go brrrr because there's no sound. So that wouldn't work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe you could put the bicycle as the captain's chair and when you pedal to turn or something. I don't know. It'd be kind of cool to figure it out. But all right, Doc, I, I've interrupted you enough. Go on
2: okay, you're going to start decorate doing the interior design of his uh, spaceship. I can already tell it's going through your head. So while you do that, I'm going to ask him, do you have aliens in your book?
1: Um, I can't say. There okay. is something that shows up at the end of the book, and I, I, I can't answer that question no, we have spoilers-free. We totally get that. We yeah.
2: get that. That's cool. I, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what it is you do. Now, have you written Aliens into your short story? Oh, yeah. In
1: fact, you, you may recall uh, Margaret Atwood many years ago said that she didn't write science fiction, which, of course, she does, but she didn't want to be known as writing science fiction because it was talking squids in outer space. And purely by coincidence, my first novel for... Uh, Doll, the one that they picked up from the other publisher and, and brought out in paperback, uh, Lost in Translation, uh, literally has a tentacled underwater alien <laughs> who talks. I literally had a talking squid in outer space in my book. Um, so, yeah, I've written aliens. That whole book is full of aliens. It was all about aliens communicating with each other. So I've I've done uh, and Andy Nebula, my I guess Andy Nebula, Interstellar Rockstar, was my first published science fiction novel. And it has an alien tent- tentacles again <laughs> called a Hydra. I'm noticing
2: uh, a theme here.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, did, I like tentacles. Um, yeah, so I've done aliens early on. Now, the, since then, I don't think I've written aliens since Lost in Translation. Marsha Girl doesn't have them. Uh, Terrence Segura doesn't have them. The City Born doesn't have them. None of my science fiction novels have had aliens since then. So I have written them, but not recently.
0: I have to say, this is, used to come up when we used to do analysis of the reviews, but it just wasn't as entertaining for the writers or the re- the listeners as it was for us. But it always amazes me that, you know, you read the one stars and the five stars side by side, and they'll be <laughs> complaining or praising the exact same thing. So yeah, that dig, nice. uh, Talking Squids from Outer Space, like that was a bad thing. I'm like, wait, sign me up. Where can I buy that book? <laughs> so Yes.
2: <laughs> you, I'm sure Grandpa Walt can hook you up, Jr.
0: So when you do write your, uh, your aliens or in your fantasy books, you know, your, your creatures or whatever, how do you create them? Do you let nature inspire you? Do you make something up out of whole cloth? Like what's, what's your creative process for,
1: for these? Well, in the case of the Lost in Translation, which had the most aliens in it, they were sort of analogous to various earthly life forms. So you had the underwater uh, creature you had uh, winged bat-like aliens. Um, there were some very, like, high-gravity swamp-dwelling slugs <laughs> who were very hard to communicate with because everything was so slow with them. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I tended in that case definitely. I was thinking of of life forms uh, on Earth. So I suspect that's where the inspiration usually comes from, thinking of some, but you know. There are some really weird life forms on earth and if you want to get even weirder you just go and look at some of the stuff in like the burgess shale or some from the very early there's things there things there that you you know they're, they're still trying to figure out exactly how these things worked so uh you can you can be inspired by stuff on earth and still come up with stuff that's that's really really weird
0: <laughs> yeah they've actually had a couple of things wash up on shore that were originally thought to be like myths and legend type creatures clearly they don't exist and then you know, a dead one is washed up on shore. That's happened a couple times this
1: century. So,
0: oh, well, the giant uh, squid was like that.
1: Nobody believed they existed, and then they got one. So, they found one. So,
0: yeah, they, they, uh, when they first found the platypus when they were in Australia, that it was the same thing. They thought somebody had made it up and stitched some hides together. And, you know, then they found we the weird stuff really does. For
2: the Loch Ness to come out.
0: I'm telling you, Nessie is there. You just wait. I'm All not right. Not so, like... <laughs> I'm just I not believe, to believe, okay. No, I mean, that's an expensive trip to look for that. So uh, as this interview is clearly winding down, was there anything about the Tangled Stars that we didn't ask you um, before we wrap this up?
1: I think we, I think covered, we covered it pretty uh, thoroughly. Um, the most important thing is that it's funny, it's adventurous, and it has a talking cat in it. I mean, what more could you want?
0: Absolutely. I, the talking cat sounds fun. Do you have other uplifted animals, dogs? I don't know, parakeets, something like that?
1: Uh, No, uh, Tybalt is the only one because he's highly illegal, as I said. You're not supposed to do this, and somebody did it, and he's the only one that exists that they know of. Uh, You know, the the whole point of setting this up as a series is that, although the first book takes place within Earth's system largely until the very end, at the end of this book, they are now in a position to start figuring out what has happened out in all these other worlds that had been settled and then they lost contact with. So who knows what's lurking out there?
0: All right. So uh, if you want to know more, we're going to get his contact information and you can stalk him. I mean, follow him on social media. But before we do that, dear listener, I would like to remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right book. So do your part, people. Uh, it also sometimes does help uh, on the trad side, then decide uh, reader feedback on what they will uh, renew or not. So if you like something, say something. It, it helps. But uh, on that note, Edward, can you tell listeners and viewers how they can find you?
1: Sure. My website is edwardwillet.com, uh, two Ts on Willet. That's very important. You can find me on Twitter at eWillet. I'm on Instagram at Edward Willet Author, and I'm on Facebook at Edward.willet because I missed the memo about having the same handle for everything you're on. Uh, you can find my publishing company is Shadowpaw Press, named after our cat, ShadowpawPress.com. It's also on Twitter at ShadowpawPress and on Instagram at ShadowpawPress. Uh, and, uh, oh, I forgot to mention on YouTube, uh, I'm also there. I have a, a fairly active channel because I live stream my walks around um, my home city of Regina, Saskatchewan, all, like five times a week or thereabouts. And I talk about writing and publishing and whatever comes to mind while I'm doing that. So uh, that's another way you can you can definitely stalk me there. You can literally stalk me <laughs> if you're watching that. <laughs>
0: All right. And you can find us, dear listener, on our Twitter at twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast. We do have a Facebook page as well that we're working on. Um, kicking into high gear for season three so uh go ahead and give that a, a follow as well so we can keep you updated and in addition to our episodes we're sharing things like book reviews uh book recommendations i found a few sites that do lots of book recommendations so we share the good stuff to uh, always give you something new to read, because I don't ever want to hear you say, but I was bored and had nothing to do. Uh, we have our website, anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech and tack blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on, or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author Jr. Hanley. Be sure to put in the show, in the notes that it's for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly uh, drowned in books. That did not rhyme at all. I will work on that for next time. But but we will keep them in the paper so they were never bored as well. And we can find new and exciting authors that we discover through your generosity. So, uh, so do your part, people, and uh, bring it home, Doc.
2: Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the absentee, addle-brained Nick Garber, the, um, well, equally addle-brained Sarah Handley, I'm Suska. This is a Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week or sometime in between. Uh, <laughs> same time, same place. Bad jokes are guaranteed, as well as a love of nerdy culture and all things that go boom, of course.